Welcome to the Wave Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the economics of running a business in a small, picturesque town. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the things we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Rachel Hampton, the host of Slate's Internet Culture Podcast, in case you missed it. And me, Rebecca Alter, a writer about all things pop culture at vulture.com. As you might have been able to tell from the intro, today we are talking about the Hallmark Holiday Movie Industrial Complex. Y'all know the movies I'm talking about where an overworked and undersexed career woman has to go to a small town for the holidays where she meets the owner of some local business and discovers the true meaning of Christmas. Two souls will have to work together to discover the spirit of the season. Merry Christmas. A Hallmark Channel original movie. The Christmas Spirit, an all-new premiere, Sunday, December 1st. The last time I was on The Ways, I was talking about romance novels, so it's kind of easy to imagine why I love these movies. There's just something so satisfying and also funny about the way these movies are all the same, but with different kind of window dressings. But Rebecca, why did you want to talk about this? I want to talk about this because I just got cable for the first time since I moved into my own apartment in my adult life. And between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we are in the corridor where these movies are inescapable. And what I find so fascinating about them, I've been watching them and enjoying them for a while, is that um, all these small towns that you mentioned that they take place in, Those small towns exist in the uncanny valley. There is something so, I guess, like askew and hard to place. The language is ever so slightly off. And that is the thing that always draws me back to them. And I mean it, I mean it in a good way. I'm truly so excited to talk about this with you, uh, which we will really get into this after a short break. Rebecca and I will be back to define what exactly makes a Hallmark holiday movie TM and how these movies have somehow managed to stand the test of time. We will also be talking about Rebecca's experience on the set of one of these movies in the Slate Plus segment. Buried the lead. (laughs) I gotta leave a little tease, you know? Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's where Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar talked about their new book, The World Record Book of Racist Stories. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. And we're back. Like we said before the break, we are here to talk about Hallmark movies. But before we get started, I think it might be helpful to kind of define our terms a little bit. Rebecca, I consider you a scholar of Hallmarkology. So could you tell me a bit about like where these movies came from and why they feel so ubiquitous? So we think of these movies as like super traditional Christmas, but there's almost like a Mandela effect if you 
if you go back into your own memory, these didn't exist in the way that they exist now as recently as like a decade ago. Like maybe every few years, there would be one in, like throughout the 90s and early 2000s, there would be like one of these a year and it would be on CBS or it would be on ABC or Freeform slash ABC Family, which we'll get into. And it ballooned over the past decade into this massive force. It's the franchise of Christmas. It's the Christmas CU. That happens primarily over on Hallmark and Lifetime, and then now kind of on streaming as well. And we're calling these Hallmark movies because I think, Rachel, you put it really well uh, to me off mic earlier. Yeah, so it feels like I don't actually know what movies are released by the Hallmark channel at this point. I just know that they're all part of this general genre. It's kind of like how... Kleenex means tissue. Hallmark just means Christmas movies to me at this point. So if someone asked me if any of these movies I watched were actually made by Hallmark, I would say maybe, possibly, probably. It's the brand name that we use as just the normal noun for this entire genre. And they were the ones to really start it. But the interesting thing about where it is now, where they all exactly like you said, you can't really tell one or the other apart, is that Hallmark started, I think, kind of obviously as like a faith-based channel. And Lifetime started as this sort of like medical advice, like segments with Dr. Ruth, like the sexpert and like um, gritty made-for-TV movies about like stalkers, stalking women yes, and all these things. I remember those. Um, yeah, Mother May I Sleep With Danger. Just like. Yeah. <laughs> and And they've gone from that to basically like, Mother, may I share a chaste kiss with <laughs> The only danger is, you know, whether or not your kiss is too explicit on these movies now at this point. <laughs> uh, I was speaking with a writer of these movies and he was talking about like the way that you have to space out the kisses or if like it's a really big win if you get two kisses in a movie. Oh my gosh. I've always felt that watching these where I'm just like, are we really only going to get one kiss and everything else is just left up to our imagination? It's edging. It's honestly quite, <laughs> quite explicit. It's so true. It's so true. All right. So we have these kind of two dueling forces, which is Hallmark and Lifetime. Hallmark is the more kind of like religious Christian moment. Lifetime starts as this kind of true crime-esque <laughs> made-for-TV movie, and now we're doing Christmas movies that are a bit more progressive. And then at some point, streaming enters the picture. So we have Netflix and Hulu and all these other streamers getting in on these movies. And those are actually, I would say, the more younger, cooler versions of the movies where there is more than one kiss. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And they say they say like ass or something in it occasionally, <laughs> which is like pretty revolutionary, all things considered. And those have really like made these movies sort of like now there's one or two that rise to the top every year. And most often they're like the Netflix ones now that people actually talk about. This year it's the Lindsay Lohan one, Falling for Christmas. Sheriff, could you please tell her to let me out of here? First, we need to figure out who you are. What do you mean, who I am? My name is... My name is... So what are we supposed to do with her? I have a place. Does it have room service? 
And I'm just so fascinated the ways in which these movies do and don't follow the Hallmark movie tropes. We have to talk about what makes a Hallmark movie a Hallmark movie, even if it's not technically a Hallmark movie. So what would you say is the most important aspect to make it, you know, a a Hallmark holiday movie? I do think the most important aspect is a lesson where it's like Christmas is about finding a boyfriend who lets you take a breather from your work. That's one message. Another is very much like conjuring up this old sort of small town Americana nostalgia, family values. A lot of this is about like family owned businesses, which is hilarious because then you go to the commercial breaks and it's all for the sorts of like companies that made those not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's almost always a dead parent. These, These poor protagonists, they're like Disney characters. They always have a dead mom or dad. There has to be a dead mom or dad. Sometimes there's a dead spouse. The man in the small town is a widower, is also occasionally um, a part of this, or a single parent and a widower. There's sometimes a child involved, career woman who's realizing that maybe her career is not important. And then a man who recognizes the value of work, but doesn't overvalue work, you know? And who is a widower to prove that he is um, sensitive and caring. Capable of love, yes. There's almost always an in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a huge proportion of these are in-based movies. It's like White Lotus, whatever. We're not talking about resorts. <laughs> we are talking about small, little, charming inns. And bad guys are often real estate developers. They're often these women's bosses. And they're coming here on sort of like a double mission. Yeah, it's almost anti-capitalist if you think about it. (laughs) It's so strange because they love to do these loving illustrations of shopping and stores in a way that's sort of like the way a a Cracker Barrel gift shop, like that front room evokes (laughs) that homey feeling. That's such a great description of the way, of the kind of vibe of these movies is Cracker Barrel gift shop. (laughs) These movies really help you get into a zone of Christmas, of December, of I'm not, I'm not, here's, here's the crazy thing. I'm not even Christian. I'm Jewish. <laughs> and it convinces me to be like, I need to go, I need to get a tree. Like yeah, it's after the first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's time to start playing Christmas music. <laughs> They're very effective. And I think, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to frame it as insidious because they also provide comfort. They're cozy. They're sort of always on, there's, there's an ambient, noise sort of nature to them. Yeah, yeah. It is very comforting, like you said. And I know you said you don't want to go too insidious, but there is something really interesting about the kind of return to basics idea that underlies a lot of these movies. I made a joke about it being anti-capitalist, but more accurately, it's anti-globalization, which could be radical, but really does remind me of a lot of kind of conservative Christian themes of, you know, life was better when we were all in small towns and we didn't live in big cities and we knew our neighbors and everyone was in each other's business. That's the best way life is. And I mean, we can't go on without saying how white a lot of these movies are and how a lot of times people of color just don't figure into these fantasies. 
Absolutely. I think they fuel that classic, that fantasy that never existed of a cozy, nice, mid-century, back-to-the-old-ways thing. It's very, honestly, it's very trad wife. It's very trad. It is. And that is intersected with the ways in which these networks do or don't allow for racial diversity. Because I turned on Hallmark this morning just to, like, prep for this and have movies on in the background. (laughs) Get in the mood. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and, like, between, you know, 7 and now, which is, like, 2 p.m., it was definitely only ones with um, white leads. And when Black characters are in them, they're very much, like, oh, the, like, helpful uh, boss at the antique store. Or the, you know, it's always um, in that classic sort of, like, one-dimensional side role. Uh, Although... These networks over the years have tried to make an effort to work more with um, Black filmmakers and Black casts. And a lot of the primarily Black networks that used to exist, like UPN or BET, made their own versions of these movies. So in the same way that the kind of, I think, original idea of a Hallmark movie does have these tropes, which is, you know, white woman goes to a small town, there's a small business, There's a man who is emotionally intelligent, but also a little bit rugged. A lot of people have kind of tried to put their own spin on it while still kind of hewing really closely to these standards. So when did you start watching these movies? I think it was around the time Lacey Chabert, who's a fixture in these movies, like she is one of the true like Mount Rushmore of stars of these movies. Lacey Chabert is a really kind of perfect figure to talk about because her big role, to us at least, is Mean Girls, right? And there's this way in which these movies not only trade on nostalgia as a kind of pastiche, but in their casting. I think that's primarily why I started watching them. I started watching definitely in my 20s. I remember BuzzFeed used to do roundups of the best Christmas movies coming out this season. And by best, they always met the funniest. And one of them had Cat Graham in it. And I was just like, wait, my girl from Vampire Diaries is doing a Christmas movie and Ron Safis Jones was in it. I was just like, of course I'm going to watch this. But it's, it's this incredible way these movies get all these characters and all these actors that we recognize, like Mario Lopez, whose entire career seems to be based off of doing these Christmas movies, or Melissa Joan Hart, and adding that nostalgic factor into like the general nostalgia machine that these movies are a part of. Yeah, there's that meta-nostalgia, and also I think we've seen it sort of come for us. It's very much, like, to say that a Vampire Diaries person has been cast, I'm like, oh, we are old now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't believe I'm old enough to have nostalgia bait targeted towards me specifically. So at this point, I think we've really effectively defined what makes a Hallmark movie. And it's not appearing on the Hallmark channel. It's this kind of nostalgia, both in casting and in form of the movie, a nostalgia for a past that really didn't ever exist. There is a career-driven woman, ambitious, but maybe her ambition isn't serving her well. There's a sensitive man who may or may not have gone to therapy. And then there's just a beautiful small town where everyone is so nice. 
So now that we know what makes a Hallmark movie a Hallmark movie, I think it's time to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the appeal of these movies and whether or not kind of more recent entries into the canon can tell us about the future of the genre. But if you want to hear more from Rebecca and I, you should check out our Ways Plus segment. We'll be diving deep into Rebecca's experience on set with one Rita Moreno. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And we're back. Before the break, we defined what exactly makes a Hallmark movie a Hallmark movie. And now I think it's time to talk more broadly about the place that these movies have in our culture. I think of them as very similar to romance novels in that both of them rely really heavily on kind of tropes and stereotypes to do the heavy lifting of the storytelling, which has its upsides in that you put on a Hallmark movie, you know how it's going to end. You pick up a romance novel, you know how it's going to end. But it also has its downsides, because as I said before the break growing up, I tended to associate these movies most heavily with white people. But I will say, I kind of think we're past the point of debating whether or not these movies can be like anti-racist or like feminist or not. I think it's kind of more important to talk about what it means for us, like two girls in Brooklyn who probably describes ourselves as progressive to watch and enjoy these movies? I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are progressive in their lives who watch um, less than progressive valued things. I'm even thinking just about the amount of culture that's out this year that's about, it is about satirizing really rich people, things like White Lotus, Triangle of Sadness, Glass Onion, whatever else. There is a bit of that, but the satire only goes so far and the rest of it is just me enjoying watching opulence and character actors. I mean, I watch reality television and that is just watching opulence. I just like watching rich people sometimes. (laughs) And I think this scratches a, a slightly different but similar itch of sometimes you do just want to watch the little miniature train town, snow globe scene, world for a bit and just, yeah, relax into it, I guess. Yeah, it's it's the fantasy of it. And I think that's what a lot of these movies are really good at 
creating. I don't actually think most of them are going for realism. I would be shocked if they were. They're going for a kind of escapist fantasy. And there was something in your piece about this that really kind of was an aha moment for me where um, you were talking to like the head of Lifetime or something about what the ideal Lifetime viewer watching these movies is. Yeah, I asked like, who's the prototypical when you're programming your slate for the year? Who is the person who's watching these movies to you guys like in your heads? And she said, it's a mother and maybe her kids have moved out of the house, but she's preparing to host for the holidays. And so maybe she's sending out cards or she's planning table settings or she's wrapping presents or the kids are over and and everyone's cooking and hanging out. And so they basically acknowledged that they make these movies like with an intention that you're not 100% eyes on the screen paying attention, that it's ornamental um, the same way as so much Christmas stuff is. It's it's vibe curation. And the vibes are immaculate. I have to say, no matter what the movie is, I I feel the vibe. And it is really kind of fascinating when you think of it as a kind of industrial complex, which at this point it is, as to what is it kind of telling us? And also, how are people trying to change it? I feel like the streamers, Netflix and Hulu are trying really hard to get in on the industrial complex while also kind of trying to push it forward. I'm thinking of the Kristen Stewart Hulu movie last year, which was explicitly gay, The Happiest Season. Yes, Netflix ones I watch are usually all have really diverse cast. Yeah, it took until I think the first same-sex lead couple in one of these was only in... 2019 or 2020. That's a couple way of years too recent. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I don't know if you were following like the Bros movie rollout discourse. I was. I have not seen the movie yet, but I was following the discourse. It's it's a very self-aware uh, queer rom com, and there are these scenes. Sort of, there's a motif that gets interspersed throughout where he's watching. Christmas movies on the, I think it's called the Hall Heart Channel. And they are increasingly silly. There's one that's like a bisexual Christmas. And then there's another where it's like, a po- like they're holding hands around the tree and then more people come in and it's like a polycule Christmas. <laughs> Beautiful. So they're really, it, it illustrates the gains that have been made and also the ways in which they can make a queer identity as heteronormative as possible within the confines of these movie structures. That is what is so incredible about these movies is that they all have, like, even as they try to progress, they all have this kind of flattening effect where it's less the specificity of the communities that they're including being included in the movie. It's more these communities assimilating into this genre and whether or not that is actual inclusion or not is a really kind of interesting question of would it be better to have a more culturally specific Hallmark movie? Or is that really what we go to Hallmark movies for? Because I don't think it is. Yeah, I'm not going to a Hallmark movie um, expecting to be horny at it. Like, 
<laughs> that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to watch with your mom. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> Celebrate the Christmas season with stories of faith, family, and tradition. Starting October 21st, Great American Christmas is here. Did the letters G-A-C mean anything to you? No. Should they? No, no they should not, because <laughs> none of us should be paying attention to this. Uh, but I will give them the press anyway, unfortunately. It's called, I think it stands for Great American channel or something. And I actually hope that I'm getting it wrong. I don't people to <laughs> As you should, because anything with great American is giving me MAGA vibes. Right? Yeah. And and you're right to think so. And they are signaling that to the people they want to be watching it. But basically, I don't know if you know, there was um, drama a couple years ago where when Hallmark aired a commercial featuring a lesbian wedding. So two brides, I think they may be kissing it, which for Hallmark, it's, it's uh, incredible. Quite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just anyone kissing it all. Honestly. Um, <laughs> and One Million Moms, like that really sort of like angry, conservative Christian, white Karen, whatever group of uh, people, uh, you know, did a letter writing campaign and they were causing an uproar. And the actual controversy wasn't that, but it was that the CEO pulled the ad. Oh my god. So gosh. that was the controversy is that they responded like in an affirming way. And he ended up leaving Hallmark after that holiday season. It was like January, he's gone because this was terrible press. And he ends up starting or getting involved with, I forget which, I think he started it, a, a new network called GAC. And the messaging surrounding GAC is all like, a, you know, return to family and American values. And it's literally being like homeland values, basically. Like, it really crawls up to the line. It's giving manifest destiny. <laughs> and so for every advance that's made in terms of like, you know, queer representation in these movies, there's been this backlash where they're like, we're going to make our own Christmas movies. And we've got Candace Cameron Bure, who's like the biggest number one Hallmark Christmas movie star. Like she is the one, but she is also a like raging, crazy conservative. And so she left Hallmark. She went over to GAC and she's sort of been the like face and the voice of it. And she was like asked because this felt extremely pointed like oh are you do you think you'll ever uh represent holidays besides christmas or just like you know holidays in general because there are a couple hanukkah movies uh now as well that exist um on the streamers and on the networks um and do you think you would ever include like you know uh gay plot lines and storylines and she responded in a way that was something like didn't say the word it was very don't say gay but it was um we are are going to focus on traditional values and traditional stories of traditional families. So as with the way that these, even this weird, scrappy, but somehow huge genre of these made-for-TV Christmas movies, th this ecosystem is mirroring the sorts of 
progress and then reactionary backlash that happens at large. And I guess Lifetime and Hallmark have become the centrists. Like they're they're like well-meaning liberals. No, that is what's so fascinating about it is that with, you know, the rise of GAC, which is truly one of the worst acronyms I've heard in a really long time. And then Netflix and the streamers on the other side, you have these two new poles of holiday movies. And then, yeah, the OGs are kind of just in the middle where they're not really leaning one way or the other. They're kind of trying to be as almost as secular and non-political as possible. They're just putting out content. They're just like, this is for everybody. Yeah, I do think, like, I will applaud um, Lifetime for being the first ones to make, they did um, a gay one on TV and a lesbian one on TV. The lesbian one is really cute because they're in, like, a gingerbread house-making competition. And I'm like, oh, that actually does represent my culture in many ways. <laughs> I'm like, I would. It's in a adolescence right now. Because, again, this isn't as old a genre as its sort of stodgy old tropes would have you believe. These only really became codified in the late aughts. So I think it's in a transitional phase, and I'm excited to follow it on its seasonal journey wherever it goes. Before we head out, we want to give y'all some recommendations. Obviously, keeping with the theme of this episode, we're going to be recommending some holiday movies. Rebecca, what are you loving right now? Okay, so one great non-GAC option. I'll give a couple. Uh, Dolly Parton made a musical one last year. She's done a ton of these. She's someone who's actually been releasing Christmas specials for TV, like made for TV movies, like since the 80s. And she's sort of sped up the pace lately. But she did one for Netflix called Christmas in the Square. It is phenomenal. It is a musical. It is very silly. It has a stacked, stacked cast. It's all about caring, love and compassion. Better to give than receive. Now that is the true fact. Those who don't you know, Dolly Parton is like, I think, an angel of Christmas or something. So I love that it's a bit supernatural, a bit silly. So I would recommend that one. And then this isn't um, a movie, it's a Christmas special, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but on Showtime, there's a comedy special called Matt Rogers, Have You Heard of Christmas? And it is so funny. It is definitely not like whole family can view it like this. Like there's a lot of um, explicitness in it, but it's, he just wrote a bunch of new Christmas songs and they're silly and um, raunchy and funny and actually catchy. And those are the Christmas songs that have been stuck in my head this year. Okay. I love Matt Rogers. So that's a great recommendation. How about you? So I love the holiday calendar. It has, you know, the surprise grandpa of my heart, Ron Safis Jones, who plays like, you know, the grandpa in movies who is just like, I support you in everything that you do. Like that is him in this movie. And it is so sweet. And then one that is also supernatural and also a fascinating, you know, artifact called the spirit of Christmas, where 
you know, this hardened real estate agent has to go and um, get an inn sold because the owner died. But there's a ghost haunting the inn. And the ghost is corporal for uh, 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas. Of course, naturally. Of course, of course. And so obviously she falls in love with the ghost. Um, And it's just beautiful. It's perfect. Every single year I make a new person in my life watch it. That is my holiday tradition. I'm just like, you have to watch The Spirit of Christmas. I'm going to watch that um, right after this. Please do. And then um, tell me what your thoughts about it. (laughs) Well, that is our show this week. The Waves is produced by Chana Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer of Audio for Slate. And Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get a little bonus nugget of content. And since we're here with Rebecca Alter, who wrote a phenomenal piece for Vulture called I Made a Lifetime Christmas Movie, we're going to use this time to talk about her experience on set. Rebecca, what was it like? I saw you wore a costume. (laughs) Oh, I had multiple costume changes. So they filmed these in the months often leading up to that season's Christmas movie slate. And that means they were filming this in the dead of summer. And luckily, like these movies, you know, usually take place in a snowy Vermont town or Montana or Colorado, wherever. But this fortunately takes place in California. They filmed it in Tennessee, but it takes place in California. So we didn't have to wear like thick winter coats in anything. Uh, Cause I was told by, I forget who it was. Someone on the set was telling me, oh yeah, it's really, you know, it's brutal when there's like a flirty snowball fight because it's like fake snow and it's boiling out and they're, you know, filming it for like a million takes. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, when you're watching these movies often, you know, if they're walking around the town square with hot chocolate, with mm-hmm. their gloves and their hats. It's fully warm. It's out. actually 90 degrees outside. And then the other thing is that like most of these movies are filmed in Canada. Well, I actually don't know about most, but like a huge percentage of them are filmed in Canada. And there's something very funny about um these ideal visions of small town America. They need to outsource to film because <laughs> they're really hard to come by now. Yeah, that really does actually make a lot of sense, I'm going to be honest with you. And also tracks with how many, I think, stray Canadian accents I feel like I hear in these movies, where I'm just listening and I'm like, that's that's pretty Canadian. Yeah, Hallmark is uh, catching stray Canadians. And I do have to say, <laughs> I'm also, like, on top of being like, okay, I just, like, am Jewish and I'm going to be a Christmas movie extra now. I'm also fully Canadian and just wait until people call me out on it. So I felt like (laughs) I was really betraying the Canadian film industry uh, by filming the rare um, American Christmas movie. But they were also filming in Tennessee while we were doing that. I was hearing buzz from the extras, right? Because they were talking about how they went on the little casting board and applied or whatever. And there's a rival one that was filming at um, Dollywood. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That's incredible. So what movie was this? I feel like we haven't named it yet. And who was oh, it yeah. in? <laughs> so it's called, oops, it's called Santa Boot Camp. And it stars, um, their names are Emily K- Kinney and Justin Gaston. And they, you know, they do Lifetime movies. So he played um, John Stamos in the Lifetime Unauthorized, A Full House Story movie. That was just some of our um, Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 